Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. There ain't no grave gonna hold his body down. I, I saw him. I saw him standing there. I, I'd gone to the tomb intending to take care of a dead body, but Instead, I saw him. I'm still in shock. It's a good shock. It's an incredible shock. It's a shock that only he could give. I, I can't stop smiling and laughing and crying. I can't stop telling everyone either. I, and that he would ask me to go and tell others that he would choose me, an outcast, to be his messenger. But you know what? That's just like him. Did I tell you that I saw him? He's not dead. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed that the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. There ain't no
They came in out of breath, but their words made no sense. He's not there. I thought to myself, what do you mean he's not there? Of course he's there. I saw it with my own eyes. I watched from a distance as they rolled that huge stone in front of the tomb. Nobody's going to move that thing. And all those men were calling for guards to be placed in front of it. He's not there. What was I supposed to think about that? Still, I couldn't just sit there either. I had to go see for myself. I mean, what if the ladies were confused? What if they'd gone to the wrong tomb? Sure, that's unlikely, but crazier things have happened. You know, crazier things like him not being there. He really wasn't. I got there all out of breath. I walked right in that tomb. There were cloths laying there, but he was gone. And it's not because someone moved him. It's because he's not dead. This has to have something to do with why he wouldn't lie. I don't fully know what this means yet, but I can't wait to find out. He's not dead. There ain't no grave gonna hold his body down. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. There ain't no grave gonna hold his body down. He told us it would happen. How did we miss it? He kept saying, I'm going to tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. And we kept missing what he was talking about. We thought he meant the giant building, you know which makes sense, but that's just like him. How many times did we ask for clarifications on the things he said? But it was just like him. Uh -oh. It wasn't the buildings, it was him. He was going to be torn down in three days. This is incredible. His stories are already flying to what happened, but I know the truth and there's no way you or anybody's gonna keep me quiet. Not when I get to tell everyone that he's not dead.
Shame is a prison as cruel as a grave. Shame is a robber, and he's come to take my name. Oh, love is my redeemer, lifting me up from the ground. Love is the power where my freedom song is found. There ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. There ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise up out of the ground there ain't no grave gonna hold my body down With a smooth and velvet tongue, fear is a tyrant. He's always telling me to run. Oh, love is a resurrection. Love is a trumpet sound. Love is my weapon. I'm gonna take my giants down. There ain't no grave. Gonna hold my
online, I know you didn't hear a word I just said, and you're probably wondering what in the world's going on in here. But I asked the question, what would it take to convince you that pigs could fly? And the children have already said that it wouldn't matter if their parents told them, it wouldn't matter if their teachers told them. What if your history books said it? Would you believe it then? If your history books told you that pigs could fly, would you believe that, kids? No? Man, tough customers. What if, what if you saw one flying? Would you believe it then? Even if you, wow, okay, okay, we're getting a few yeses on that one. Parents, adults in the room, if you saw a pig fly, would you believe that a pig could fly? Or would you immediately start asking yourself, I wonder who's behind this hoax. I wonder who just dropped that pig out of an airplane so that we would all think it could fly. And I bring up pigs because I know that like 10 of you just bought pigs from our children's pastor and her family. So I figure a lot of you are fresh and some of you might be to that point where like you just want that pig to fly away because you're finding out that it's a bunch of work. So many times uh, we kind of go through this whole idea of Easter and this Easter week with this assumption that everybody believes that Jesus in fact rose from the dead. But we all know that people don't rise from the dead, don't we? Would we all kind of agree on that? And so we hear these different ideas that people come up with, and as those who believe, we sit here and we think, how could they not believe this? Like that idea that they just came up with is absolutely ridiculous, but what people are thinking so often, and maybe some of you are in this same camp, is that when we talk about a man who rose from the dead, they're sitting there thinking, and I'll bet you they believe that pigs can fly too. Let's just be real here this morning. There are some people in this room this morning who are 100% convinced that that tomb was empty about 2,000 years ago. And that's why we're here this morning. That's why we're here celebrating. But there are some people, I would bet, in this room who aren't really sure about this tomb being empty 2,000 years ago. I would bet that there are in this room who are here this morning because the only way that your mom would give you lunch later is if you got out of bed and you went to church this morning. And I say that because I have talked to that mother who has told her kids that the only way you're getting lunch today is if you get out of bed and you go to church on Easter Sunday morning. So I'm guessing there's somebody in here who is just like that. I think we sit mostly in two different camps of people. We are the people who believe that all of this is true, and we are people who don't believe that dead men live again. And now underneath that, we have subgroups of people. We have people who believe, but we're just not totally and completely sure about this whole thing. Because we, you know, maybe it's been a while since we had that encounter, that first encounter with Jesus, and we've gotten to that point where we've kind of started to wonder if maybe that encounter that we had with Jesus was actually the bad Taco Bell that we ate the night before, and maybe all of this isn't actually real in the first place. Or we get to that point where we have doubts, or we have friends who have doubts, and they ask us questions, and we're like, I honestly, I'm going to kick that water bottle if I don't move it. I honestly don't know for sure how to answer these questions. So maybe this whole thing isn't actually true in the first place. And we have people here who would say that we believe. But if you looked at our lives, if we're being really honest with it, we don't live as if we wholeheartedly believe this. And maybe that's because 
there is just a little seed of doubt in there as to whether or not all of this is true. And then we have people who don't believe. Who they just, there's, there's people who think this is absolutely and 100% ridiculous. Or maybe they're, they're a little bit closer to the middle of the line where they're like, well, it, it could be true. But I don't have an experience that really shows me that it's true. I know that there are people who who run into places screaming, a man rose from the dead, a man rose from the dead, and he did it all for you. I understand that people believe all that, but I haven't seen it. And until I see it with my eyes, I'm not going to be able to believe all this stuff. Here's how big of a deal, though, it is as to whether or not that tomb was empty 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul, which is a man that we often credit with writing about half of our New Testament, which is part of the Bible that we read out of, says these words to a church in Corinth. He says that if Christ has not been raised, so if all of this is false, then all of our preaching is useless. And our faith is useless. That's how big of an impact this one event has on all of eternity. That's how big of an impact this one event has on our lives. If it didn't happen, then while this is fun to come together and it's fun, you know, for those of you who don't know, we are fairly new to the area, so this is an awesome chance for us to get to meet a lot of new people and see some new faces, and that's fun and that's awesome, but as far as coming here on every Sunday morning, I mean, we might as well just meet down at, the, at whatever sporting event that we can meet at, because that's what this is. It's just an event that we come together, and it's not that big of a deal. Our faith is useless, and people will tell us that what faith is, is you just have to, you just have to believe it. Like you're going to have all of these questions and you're going to have all of these doubts that you have and you're just going to have to get to the point where you just say, you know what, I just have faith and I just believe it. But there was a writer that wrote a letter called Hebrews in the Bible, in that same book that I just referenced a second ago, where he says that faith is the evidence of things unseen. Faith is the evidence of the things that we don't see. Faith is not just the, you know, you just have to, you just have to blindly believe all this stuff. But God has left us clues. He has left us evidence that we can see, that we can feel so that we can walk away believing that this is true. Now, if you go into a courtroom, which I love court dramas, I love John Grisham books, so I, I love the, the courtroom scene, but if you go into a courtroom, there is a, there is a burden of proof put on the lawyers that are in there, and especially those who are prosecuting, that you have to not just convict beyond a possible doubt, you don't just have to convince the jury beyond a possible doubt, but you have to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And I believe that there is enough evidence laid out for us, not that we can believe this without any possible doubt. I've been a follower of Jesus since, the, since as early as I can remember. 
And I can tell you that there are still moments where doubts creep in, where I sit there and I ask myself, is this really true? Is this life that I've chosen to live really worth it? But what I have not been able to get to the point of is doubting beyond a reasonable doubt, believing beyond a reasonable doubt. Because I believe there is that much for us. I want us this morning to look at some eyewitness testimonies because we believe that when we see things, they're much more likely to be true. We, we just established that, that if somebody came in here screaming, pigs are flying, pigs are flying, we wouldn't all just sit here and say, pigs are flying. That's absolutely happening. No, most of us would be like, forget this guy speaking up front. Let's run outside and see if pigs are really flying. Or we would sit there and tell that person running in, you're a lunatic, shut your mouth. But we wouldn't believe it just because somebody screamed it. We would believe it because we saw it. And so I would invite you this morning to consider the evidence of the eyewitness testimonies of the people who saw the empty tomb. Of the people who saw the physical risen Jesus Christ. And I would ask you if you were in their shoes, what would it take you to withstand a life of ridicule? To go through a life of your, your very being being constantly threatened with death. That your very being would be constantly threatened with physical acts of force. You know, we live in a world where we talk a lot about our freedoms being infringed upon from us. And I'll be honest with you, most of the time, we get all up in arms about it. But what if it was to the point, what would it take you to follow and believe if it was to the point that your very life was at risk? That your health was at risk? Now let's go way beyond the freedoms that we're worried about moving and it's to the point that you'll be thrown into prison if you believe this and you talk about this. What would it take to get you to the point to say, I don't care, I can't keep my mouth shut? How convinced would you have to be that you actually saw a pig fly before you would walk into a room this size and start telling people that pigs were flying? Because that's how convinced the earliest followers of Jesus were. And as we read through the early accounts of the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Savior, we first see two women going to the tomb and they see that there's nobody here. And they're told that he is risen and so they run back and they tell a bunch of guys, hey, he's not there. And the guys don't sit there and say, oh man, I am so glad you told us this. Let's go tell everybody about this. No, it's, we, you read the story. It says they get up and they sprint to the tomb. And apparently two of them are like the cross-country runners in the group because they get there way ahead of everybody else. And one of them, he's a little bit more timid. He kind of peeks inside. But Peter, being the bold Peter that he is, played by Ben Singleton this morning, who did an excellent job with it, Peter walks up and he just bursts into the tomb. And he's like, there's no Jesus. And you can bet that he immediately started wondering, what did the Romans do? Where did they put his body? What did those religious leaders do? Where did they take his body? This isn't cool. Until he encountered the risen, come back from the dead, Jesus. 
And then he went back, and John went back, and they started telling everybody about this. And one of the 12 that we see is the, you know, the closest followers of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Thomas who has gotten saddled with the name Doubting Thomas ever since. He's sitting there, and he wasn't there when Jesus came into the room. And so he wondered if it was really true or if maybe the other 10 that were in the room were just you know, maybe they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing and they were seeing things they shouldn't have been seeing. And he's just kind of, I'm just, I trust you guys, but I'm just not there. I just can't believe that he came back from the dead. I mean, yes, I know he raised Lazarus from the dead, but, but he, how do you raise yourself from the dead? Like, that's a whole nother level, guys. And so we branded him a doubter ever since. Let's be real, though. How many of us wouldn't have sat there and doubted the very same thing? 2,000 years later, how many of us doubt the very same thing? I don't walk around saying, well, hello, my name is Doubting Justin. Nice to meet you. I don't introduce you as, as Doubting Joe, especially if your name's not Joe. That would be really weird. They were so convinced because they saw and then they could not be kept silent about it. What would it take you to be convinced and to believe that your brother is the son of God? Now, how many of you first, how many of you here have brothers? That's quite a few of us. I've got four of them. And I love my brothers. They are some of the nicest people that I know. But what would it take you to be convinced that that, that young man or that older man who, who used to pick on you and call you names and pull your hair and shove your head in the toilet and give you wedgies and wipe his boogers on you and burp in your ear and, and let one rip in your face, what would, I'm just talking about my experience, I don't know what your experience was, what would it take for you to be convinced that that guy was the son of God? Because that's what James believed about his brother. And it wasn't always that way. We can read through the story, we can read through the account that we have for us, that there is a moment where Jesus' brothers and his mother come up to him, and they're basically trying to say, hey, you need to stop because you're acting crazy. Nobody believes this about you being the son of God. This is, this is ridiculous. Don't do this. After an encounter with his risen, back-from-the-dead brother, James writes in his letter in James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, my brother Christ. And he didn't mean brother like we use sister and brother in the church. He meant like my brother, Jesus Christ. What would it take to convince you that your sibling was the son of God? It would take a whole lot more for me than one of my four brothers saying, hey, Justin, just so you know, I'm God. Oh, okay, we're good. This is awesome. I'm related to God. I would need to see it with my own eyes. And that's what our eyewitness James saw with his own eyes was the risen, back from the dead, empty tomb, Jesus Christ. Or what would it take you to be a man who had 
all the influence that you could imagine, all the power that you could imagine, all the prestige that you could imagine, and throw it all away because of a belief in another man. What would it take? My wife and I like to watch law shows and, and we, you know, we always get a kick out of the Jack Bowers who can just go to their boss and say, like, hey, I heard this guy's a bad guy, let me go get him. And the boss goes, go for it. And I know that by referencing Jack Bauer, I just dated myself because 24 was like 20 years ago. But some of you who are closer to my age, you knew who I was talking about there, right? I'm not alone, Jack, Jack Bauer? Maybe? Oh, man, ooh. Okay, so Kansas had some different shows apparently. That's fine. But that's who, that's who Saul was. Saul was the guy who could go to his boss and who can say, hey, I heard about these guys over here, these Christians over here. Much like Jack Bauer could go and say, I heard about these terrorists. He could go to his, his bosses and say, I heard about these Christians over here. Let me go get them. And they'd say, go for it. We read the, the first encounter that we have with Saul, and he's this, he's this young man who's there when Stephen is being stoned to death because he was too outspoken about the risen Savior that he had seen. He's being stoned to death, and it says they lay their coats as they're getting ready to start throwing rocks at this guy and kill him. They lay their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul, and he approved. And then Saul eventually gets all this, all this power, and he's a pretty big dog until he has an encounter with a risen back from the dead, empty tomb Jesus. And then he decides that he is willing to embrace this kind of life. Five different times. Sorry, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. And this is what I'm going to boast about. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knowing I am not lying. The Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise. I used to kill people who believed that this stuff was true. Now I am the hunted who people are trying to kill because I am that convinced that this is true. When you go into a courtroom, it's often the eyewitness testimonies that, that turn the entire thing. And it's the eyewitness testimonies that we have laid out for us that we can read. The most powerful thing it's often said that you have, if you believe, 
that you can share with somebody is your story. It's your personal encounter with Jesus. But here's the thing about that. Everybody has a story about what they believe. People who don't believe any of this have a story as to why they don't believe it. Buddhists have a story as to why they believe what they believe. Hindus have a story as to why they believe what they believe. Everybody has a story as to why they believe what they believe. And so while your story, your eyewitness testimony is by far the most important thing you have, we can glory, we can rejoice in the fact that it is not all we have. But that we are also laid with evidence in front of us. That no, it will not take us beyond a possible doubt, but it can take us beyond a reasonable doubt. Paul tells us, that if this isn't true, then our faith is meaningless. Natasha Crane tells a story about when she went to church and she heard a, a pastor say that, that whether or not he rose from the tomb isn't really that important. It all matters about where your heart is. And her response was, if that's not true, then why do I want to get myself and my kids out of bed on a Sunday morning and go through the hassle of getting them to church? Why do I want to give up the, the money and the fame and the influence that I can have? Why would, any, why would I want to do any of that stuff? Why would I want to go to school and be ridiculed? Why would I want to go to work and possibly lose my job? Why would I want to do any of that? If it's not true, and Paul says the same thing, if it's not true, then this is all useless. But if it is true, if it's true that that tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead, then it means that the supernatural can really happen. If it's true, then it means that Jesus' radical claims to being divine were indeed true. Because you or I can't just go raise ourselves from the dead. He could. If it's true, then that means that
I understand.